Sometimes as leaders, we think there's no way someone could do the job as well as we can. It can be easy to feel like we have to have our hands in everything for our church to succeed. But as we all know, that couldn't be further from the truth. No one accomplishes anything great alone. Great leaders delegate. And if you're listening to this podcast, I know you want to be a great leader at your church. If you feel like you're overwhelmed trying to do it all, today's episode partner, Belay, can help. Belay's modern staffing solutions have been helping busy leaders like you and me delegate the details for over a decade. With Belay, you can get intentionally paired with a U.S.-based virtual assistant or accounting specialist and level up your church through the power of delegation. I know what you might be thinking. I can't afford to bring on help. If you're a church leader trying to do it all, this might be the best investment you can make in your church, not to mention your relationships, your parenting, and your mental health. Belay's intentional matching process and dedicated guides are ready and waiting to help you take your leadership to the next level. To help you figure out where to start, Belay's offering an exclusive leadership toolkit free to our listeners. With this toolkit, you'll learn the necessary steps every leader needs to accomplish more and juggle less. Just text RUSTY, that's R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123 to get back to leading your church well with Belay. No one can do it alone. Great leaders delegate. Get the support you need to get out of the administrative weeds and back to growing your church with Belay. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Welcome to episode 246. Today, we get to hear from a guy that gets to predict the future for us. He's a guy that studies all the data, looks at all the trends, is going to tell us where the church is headed and how we can keep up with the curve. His name is David Kinneman, and he purchased Barna Research years ago from George Barna. And when you think about research, you think about Gallup, you think about Pew Research, you think about Barna. They survey so many people and ask so many questions, and they get so much data on all kinds of things, but particularly things involving the church. So we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about some difficult days in his life. We're going to talk about a transition in his life to across the country. We're also going to talk about the future of the church and where it is headed. I think you're going to love my conversation with David Kinneman. I want to thank Belay Solutions and their participation and support of the podcast. So grateful to them and for them helping make this episode possible. Here's my conversation with David Kinneman. David, thank you for joining the podcast today. Uh, for our listeners that don't know your story very much, would you kind of tell us who you are? Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Rusty. And it's been too uh, too long since we've had a chance to you know be in person, but uh, it's good to see you. And um, yeah, so I've uh, run a company called Barna for uh, for about thirteen years. Um, I worked for the founder of the company for a long time, coming straight out of college. Um, and uh, always actually figured I'd be a pastor. My dad uh, has served in a pastoral function in the Phoenix area, uh, Gary Kinneman, for essentially his whole career. Um, <clears throat> and um, so I always figured I'd be a pastor. And um, yet God sort of had a, a different sort of set of set of things. I feel like I still have a pastoral heart, kind of a, a public pastor through the research. But the, the research company that I own and, and run is called Barna. And we do social research on the intersection of faith and religion. Um, and, and culture and uh, try to under, help leaders understand what's happening and, you know, get a, a, a better map for people's hearts and minds through social research, through the things that they tell us in, in uh, the studies that we conduct. And uh, it's a real pr- privilege. I feel like we've gotten 
some, you know, just really uh, fun insights as we've gotten to interview uh, literally millions of people across uh, the United States and now increasingly around the world. So I'm sure our listeners are curious. I mean, how does somebody like or a company like yours get their data? I mean, is it a lot of cold calls? Is it just blanket emails? Is it you using SurveyMonkey over there? Or how's that work? Yeah, well, we just ha- we just asked my parents to fill out the the, the survey, you know, a thousand times, and uh, it, <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper that way. Um, yeah, no, we've used a variety of different methods. I mean, there's qualitative, there's quantitative, there's ethnographic research, um, all sorts of different things. Primarily, we're a quant-oriented company, which means that we do data that can be, you know, calculated and tabulated, and you know, a certain rep- random representative sample. Uh, of people. And um, we traditionally started out mostly as a telephone uh, data collection company, but as that has changed and as people have gotten, you know, more and more cell phones and caller ID uh, and different kinds of technology has entered, uh, we've done more and more online. So we're, we're mostly online now. We use, you know, high quality research panels. We write the questions and collect the data through random representative samples. Uh, we cross-reference that against dem- uh, publicly available demographic data uh, that's available through the Census Bureau and other public sources to try to represent certain categories of people in the data. Uh, but it's a fun process. You know, there's a real science to it and art as well. And um, you know, I think there's um, as, as research has become even more ubiquitous, it's been um, it's not always easier. There's you know reasons why I think certain kinds of voices are actually. Uh, as much as we can get access to almost anyone, why just having a lot of online polls can be a real limitation. I mean, you miss people who who, who uh, can't read or who aren't online or might be in a certain socioeconomic t- status that they're just a little harder to reach or, or don't want to share their opinions. They're, they're skeptical about, you know, uh, being polled on any topic. And so um, the golden age of telephone polling uh, was, was actually pretty good because almost all households had a landline. Uh, back in the good old days of social polling. But um, uh, even there, though, I think there's some things about the anonymity of online polls and other kinds of things that, you know, are, are uh, allowing us to really dig inside, you know, people's hearts and minds and give a sense of like, okay, you know, in, in an anonymous, very respectful way, people always get to opt into sharing what they want to share when they want to share it. Um, but we're able to then translate that into, you know, what does this might, what might this mean for, uh, people who want to make a difference in terms of, uh, shaping, uh, shaping a generation's perceptions of Christianity and how the church can actually speak the language of our culture very effectively. You know, it's a, it's a tremendous honor to you and to your, your predecessor, uh, that, you know, you guys get quoted a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I see you guys up there with Pew Research, with Gallup, with, you know, Barna's mentioned, and so you guys have this great reputation of being legitimate, but do you find that you have to spend a lot of time proving to people that you're a non-biased, just data kind of place? Because, there, I mean, I could find a study to prove anything I want out there right now. Yeah. Uh, h- how do you kind of let people know that you're legit? Well, I think that there's a whole psychology of what people choose to believe in terms of data, Um you know, there's this confirmi- confirmation bias that we tend to believe the things that confirm our perspectives. Um, so if we put out a piece of news about the church, um, if it's good news, bad news, those that are inclined to believe bad news about the church love the bad news about the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mainstream media, for example, we have found that they tend to 
um, really resonate with the times when we've put out uh, an article or research uh, data that is uh, perhaps a little critical or a li- little like shines a light on tough realities within the Christian community. Mm. Um, and then, um, and then there's others that might have a confirmation bias towards, you know, the positive stories of the church making a difference. And, you know, the truth is always somewhere out there <laughs> to quote the X-Files. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but the truth is always, uh, you know, sort of somewhere between our confirmation bias and our, you know, the, the reality of what's happening on the ground. And, and I think that's actually one of the most fascinating things that God has given us that we're in, created in the image of God. We're actually created with the powers of observation. We're created with um, the sense that there is a truth, there is a certain reality to be discovered. And then there's also shades of meaning and, and understanding and nuance um, that both of those things can be true about the, the human condition and about social research. So, um, you know, we've tried our very best to be, you know, just as honest as we can be. Uh, we're an independent, uh, we are a for-profit company, um, and, and you know, we have been based in California for a long time. This year, I actually moved to Texas, but we have people across 10-plus uh, states who work for, for the company. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, we do our very best to try to make it really applicable to leaders and the issues and challenges that they're facing, or to parents and issues and challenges that they're facing, or, you know, meeting the new generation of younger Christians, um, mm-hmm. you know, helping older Christians understand the mindset that might be at work under the surface for younger Christians. Um, you know, we're always doing our very best to, to translate across these different divides, whether Christian, non-Christian, secular media to Christian media, Christian leaders to uh, kind of a, a widening gap with the culture that doesn't understand the church and doesn't really want to understand its story. Um, so we, um, we we count that a real privilege to be bridge builders and to try to translate across some of those uh, those gaps. And research, while it has its limitations, is one of the very best ways for us to see someone else's perspective. Okay, so let me ask you about research, because there are some of us that are just wired to just, man, we love numbers, we dig into graphs, we and we ask all the appropriate questions for it. It's not just a slide we look at and move on. It's something you, you know, you spend, okay, so what's that mean? What's it not saying? What is it saying? I am not one of those people. Uh, I, I tend to see it and go, I know what am I supposed to do with that? Right. Um, so just tell me, are we supposed to do less songs? Are we supposed to be online or offline? <laughs> you know, so as a, as somebody out there that looks at data, give me two or three questions we should all be asking when we see these charts and graphs about where the church is going or, you know, here's what we discovered in 2022. What do I do with that? Yeah. Uh, that helped me make good decisions. That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, broadly, I think about our work as trying to understand um, a reality for some someone. Um, let's just say the, the the millennial, the the Gen Z young person, and their attitudes towards Christianity. So, what is the reality in their mind? And then we want to give people a context to place that in and then a direction to pursue. And so maybe that could frame some of the questions that we might ask ourselves as leaders is what about this context? Uh, What about this? What about this reality? Do I need to understand better? Um, Where does this confront certain things that I might have understood or thought I knew about uh, a Generation Z uh, young person, whether they're Christian or not Christian? Uh, what's the context I need to place this in? Um, and then what's the direction I need to pursue? So um, I've made the argument that we are woefully unprepared for uh, Generation Z Christians and non-Christians. They are asking a whole different set of questions. The context 
that we might place that in as I call it digital Babylon, uh, where screens disciple, um, <clears throat> that, that we have this, um, profound moment. It's a, it's a pedagogical revolution of how we learn. It's an epistemological, uh, re- reformation in terms of, of how we think we know what we know. Uh, it is a, a channel and distribution res- re- uh, re- reformation in terms of, um, even just looking at COVID, the fact that people now are, you know, millennials and, and Gen Z are, are, are sort of sampling from a lot of different church experiences. So they'll, they'll go to your church and another church and listen to podcasts. And like, we actually want that of our young people. We want them to be, uh, to be consuming as much, you know, faith oriented content as they can get because they're so more, they're much more likely to be drowned out by all of the, what they're consuming. Mm. Um, and then a direction to pursue is how do we then as church leaders, you know, think about our roles as um, not not um, trying to constrain them to say, hey, you're only a member in this one local church, but we actually try to say, here's some podcasts, here's some uh, YouTube channels, here's some huh. here's some documentaries, here's some things you should be watching. We, we, we want you to be um, wise and, and, you know, ready for the world that you're, you're living in. And, um, you know, so I think, I think just recognizing, you know, maybe the most important question that I could suggest that we ask ourselves is, is to start at that, that beginning space. Like what is my frame of reference and in what way is this research trying to help me open up to a different perspective, maybe about what someone else is experiencing. And, um, you know, that's been the great privilege of my, my career here is actually being basically a professional listener. Mm. So we've had, you know, the, just the heartbreaking and sometimes inspiring journey of coming alongside people in a, in a social research, whether qualitative deep interviews or quantitative, you know, kind of yes, no agree, disagree statements about people's spiritual journeys. And I've been just absolutely blown away by, you know, people's spiritual backstory. We, we really underestimate, I think, you know, just all these steps that people take that God has people on these journeys and they come to our churches or they come into our communities and they've already got a lot of, you know, challenges and issues related to what they believe or how they think about the church or uh, being hurt or misunderstood or um, other kinds of challenges. And so I think, I think slowing down and really letting the data tell us a story that a backstory and allowing that to confront some of our own assumptions, especially as leaders who've been sort of raised in the tradition of North American Christianity and, you know, have certain ideas of what that's going to mean for us to be successful and, and faithful. Um, I think, I think we're in a cultural moment now where some of those things are starting to be really, um, questioned and helpfully questioned. And, um, you know, we can talk more about what some of those things might be, but I think that idea of like, what's this data t- helping to teach me about someone else's perspective that, um, I just, I think I know, but I, I don't really understand as well as I probably should. That's really helpful. That, yeah, that would make a lot more sense of the things that I, I see and the data that I read and, and just kind of putting in that perspective. Okay, so let's deal with 2022. Okay, here we are. Everybody said once we got out of 2020, everything would go back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's normal. Uh, everything is different. Um, and much has been written about that, that the, you know, the COVID years and maybe 2023 will feel more like we're beyond it. But you know, what are some surprising trends that you saw in 2022 in regards to the church? Well, one of them was, <clears throat> we alluded to it, but millennials and Gen Z are actually more likely than boomers to have um, kind of sprung back into church going. Now, that doesn't look like it did in the past because they're 
now conditioned at times to use online worship and and other kind of hybrid forms and so it may feel like you know our our, our congregations aren't as full quite as they were for for many people that will be true um uh, most churches are still struggling to get back to that sort of place that they were although there are areas where i think there's even more vitality and some of that is for example um in hybrid and digital worship like i actually think the pandemic helped us i know there's a good and healthy debate about whether you have to be in the church and how you know like physical presence is different than online presence but i do think that it it enabled the church to 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 be um more digitally prepared and more um more 24 7 than it was in the past and i think that can be a good thing um so it's been a surprise to see millennials and and especially non-white millennials um black brown Asian, um, be more likely to say they're, uh, you know, kind of attending church as, as com- compared to prior to COVID. Um, at, at the, another surprise that's sort of related to this, but, um, we've actually see a real openness in terms of spirituality today. Um, um, about half, 44% of Americans say that, uh, since the pandemic, they're more open to God than they were before. Wow. And younger generations are actually um, most likely to say that it's about six and 10 Gen Z who say they're more open to God than before the pandemic. Now they're open to anything. They're open to a lot of things. Uh, they're, you know, that they're kind of a blank slate kind of generation. Uh, but I think there's some real areas of openness that we should pay attention to. Um, and again, that doesn't mean they're just like ready to sign up to, you know, come back into all the same things that maybe we would have thought about trying to sign them up for in the past. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> but, but recognizing that they're, they're open to noticing God in everyday life. Um, you know, they're open to prayer. Prayer has been a huge part of the last two, three years for people. Um, one of the primary spiritual expressions for people is prayer. Uh, they believe the power of prayer, Christian, non-Christian, even people that say they're atheists say they uh, often will admit that they pray. Um, <clears throat> so, so those are some of the, the good, sort of the good signs. I think we've seen um, a lot of entrenchment on the negative side. We've seen a lot of entrenchment in terms of um race race and racial reconciliation there's been a lot of growth i think for a lot of people especially leaders during the racial uh racial upheaval of 2020 um and i think a lot of leaders are thinking differently and better about that but there's still so much work to do and unfortunately a lot of the people in in the pews a lot of christians have become even more entrenched that the problems of race really aren't about today um and that's been i think a pretty heartbreaking thing to see um it's not true of every christian but too many christians have 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 seen uh their <clears throat> their perspectives about that um almost like crystallize in a in a in maybe a um not not a not a very healthy way and i think church leaders are right to have have really struggled with how do you talk through some of these issues of politics and race and the things that divide us because this gets to something we said a little earlier is that screens disciple and part of the challenge is how do you disciple people that have have had a pretty steady diet of you know politics and social issues and we live in a you know a contested culture so where does where does the, the christian faith and discipleship show up in that so i would say that the task of the church in trying to disciple people is as hard today as it's ever been mm-hmm. even as people's hearts are open to you know kind of thinking in some fresh ways about what it means to be um you know open to god in their lives wow yeah that is uh that is frightening uh, to some degree because you think about, boy, there's just so much energy and dollars and resources being put into discipling all of our minds. Yeah. Whether it's you're being discipled by Fox News or CNN or you're being discipled by social media, uh, we're all being influenced to some degree 
but there's also tremendous possibility as well as what churches can do to leverage it. I mean, what are, right. I mean, you deal so much with descriptive, not so much on prescriptive, but what are some things that you see that churches are doing that you think, I think this might actually get to solving some of these problems we see in the data? Well, it's interesting you talk about the, the description versus prescription and, um, <clears throat> It's a it's a discipline to try to stay on the the description side, and we've tried to do that. I would think for for a lot of our our uh, company's history, and I think we learned a lot about that from George Barna, and, and even even he really leaned in on some prescription things about we should try this, we should try this, and <clears throat> and we're we're doing more and more of that. And I just you know you sort of hear, heard it here first, like we're we're going to be doing more and more prescriptive things here at Barna because we believe that the problems. And that the possible solutions are so important for us to to lean into. So we've got like a program that we do for churches called CoLab, where we have a six week, usually six week guided journey through the data. Like, what do we do with millennials, or what do we do with giving, or what do we do with uh, men's ministry, or women's ministry, or children's ministry? And so we do these CoLabs because we we really believe that you know part of our mission in the coming years will be to help you know, through research driven insights, help people make sense of the data. Mm. And, you know, we have this spotlights, scales and shovels exercise. And this gets to another answer to something you asked earlier, a spotlight is something we should shine a light on and really understand the nature of the problem better. Um, A a scale would be something we might evaluate uh, over time. And, you know, we, we might say, um, you know, are we getting better or worse when it comes to people's love for the Bible in our in our communities? We've got a great free tool called the Church Pulse that you can take as a as a congregation to measure kind of a, the scales of how things are how people are doing. Um, and then a shovel, something we got to dig dig into and excavate and really like get beneath the, the numbers and actually even ask more questions and figure out like why is why is it that people are talking about faith deconstruction more? You know, like why are they? What is the evangelical the evangelical factor? How is that affecting our church? You know. And so I think um, we are we are trying to get you know m- more as a as a company um, uh, sophisticated in our our efforts to describe and then prescribe or at least walk people through those areas of mm. making change as a leader. <clears throat> and we're very excited about that. We have some some fun things that I think will be in the next year or two or three years. Some some really big goals that we're setting in terms of trying to help the church, you know, in in some very specific ways. But um, I think. Um, you know the the one thing I'd ask leaders to consider in this in this time is that um, you know we're we have a, a real responsibility. I believe you know Jesus says that it'd be better for us to have you know a pretty heavy object uh, tied around our neck and sort of cast into the sea as a teacher if we misled someone. That's really about heresy, and and so I don't want to sort of stretch that too far. But um, but I also think there's something about the ways we've we've oriented towards thinking about training and discipling people that um, you know we have some responsibility towards and and I'm I'm a big believer this kind of gets to this one big prescription that we are going to lean into very hard in the next couple of years which is I actually think that there's a new way of educating a, a new not new way of, of thinking about the educational muscles of the church and that sermons and the homiletics and the kind of rhetorical tools that are necessary for sermons are wonderful and important we experience christ walking among us when we preach when we preach well Um, there's a sense of the spirit moving in our midst and how beautiful that is when uh, great preaching happens and it confront any person in any stage of life and any moment in their you know in their experience 
Um, and then at the same time, <clears throat> what we're seeing, part of the underlying reality that I'm pointing to in the data is that we're not actually a very good disciple-making community, even at our best. And I believe the reason for that is because we've, we've kind of lost sight of the education muscle, the pedagogical skills of how do we take someone through a set of content. They can't pick and choose. They can't opt out of certain weekends. They can't come, you know, every five weeks and hope to become the kind of Christian that we intend. So we've got to redouble our efforts as a church to become an educating, catechizing uh, community and, and actually creating courses and, and, uh, experiences and and learning journeys that start with let, let's understand who you are how you learn what your story is what your backstory is why you've gotten stuck and 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 hurt and broken but what if the church actually kind of came to redeem that and and especially then with younger people who um who god is you know wiring a very anxious and ambitious generation in front of us um how can the church be a place to help you know sort of disarm the anxiety that this generation feels, but also propel them towards this great ambitious uh, goal they have to make a difference in the world. And that comes back to this idea that we could become a learning community under the authority of scripture. And so I would just encourage, you know, we this, those are big ideas, thoughts. I would encourage leaders to begin saying like, how can we actually become a better educating, learning community? Sermons are, are part of the pinnacle of that, but they're not the only strategy and becoming a, a pedagogical community, a persuasive community that actually uh, compels people towards this way of Christ, of life in Christ. And I, I heard an amazing lecture a couple of weeks ago uh, from John Dixon, who's a, an Australian, who was saying that in the first two centuries of the church, the church viewed education as integral to its mission. They they would people would study. 100, 150, 200 hours to be catechized, even in the early church, you had to go through this process because persecution was so intense in those early mm. years of the church that you had to understand what it was you were signing up for that was against the false gods of those, those um, you know, first and second, third century Christians. And so that's part of my, my um, belief now is we actually need um, churches that are inspired by the historic ways in which Christians have invented education, uh, higher education, uh, sort of public education, catechism process. And we've got to become a persuasive community that helps to, to say, listen, this is this is the life of Christ. You, you're you're going to miss it if we don't like kind of take you to school. And hmm. and I think we as communicators have a, an opportunity to um, you know do some really cool stuff. Sermons are, again, a really important part of the the muscle musculature of a persuasive community, but so is education. So are experiences. So are other kinds of tools that I think uh, is, is just ripe for the moment. And so that's, that's part of this. Like, how do we, we're going to be um, providing more and more prescription around some of that kind of um, a restoration of the, the structure of what it means to learn as a Christian community together, because otherwise we're, we're just being so deeply shaped by, by these cultural forces. Mm. Um, and there's no way out of the, there's no way out of it. So we've got to, we've got to return to our roots. And I'm excited about being at least a small part of uh, championing that cause. Mm. I love that. Um, I, <laughs> it's funny you say that, uh, I I've been watching what we do and what the church has been doing now for the last decade. And we got very excited about, the internet as we should and online and all those kind of things. And we were early adopters on the online thing and we've been doing it and we'll, we'll continue doing it. But I've noticed our, our answer to what it is that you're talking about has seems to always been okay. Just more video content. Let's get more up on YouTube and 
I'm not saying we don't need that, mm -hmm. but it is interesting that the thing that people have craved and missed the most is that one-on-one -on -one or even one-on-eight, you know, the community kind of side of things. Right. I, I almost wonder, and if it happens, then I'll, I'll use this soundbite as look what I predicted. I almost <laughs> wonder if, if Sunday school will make a return because people are a little bit more leery to go into somebody's house for small group. Not everybody wants to sit around somebody's living room. They don't know. And, you know, read a book, but they're already at church. Their kids are in children's ministry. Let's sit around a table with, you know, coffee and donuts and talk about what we just heard or apply it. Or it almost seems like there's an educational piece that can happen there, which is where our Sunday school began in the first place. So am I, am I crazy? No, I don't think you're crazy at all. And I think, um, you know, I should have done a big drum roll before you made your prediction. <laughs> but, <laughs> we'll um, add it in later. <laughs> perfect. Um, no, I think that's 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 exactly the kind of thinking that is is needed, and it's 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 that and so much more. I think there's um, uh, we don't want to you know lay lay up on people more burdens than they can handle in an already busy world. But I do think that the kinds of religious systems, whether we're talking about uh, Islam or Mormonism. Um, um, in particular, those two come to mind, but, th but those, those religions ask a lot of their people because you have to, you have to be immersed in what that, um, what that story means for you as a human being. And, and, you know, you, you've got to come to grips with some things. And I think we haven't done, if we're being really honest, mm. um, we haven't always done a good job of helping the people who are under, under our charge come to, to grips with, with the, the far reaching, reality of what it means to follow christ we 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 have sometimes failed to go there ourselves as leaders and we have to repent of that um we have sometimes bought into a notion of of building you know kind of a, a program driven church where we've got you know and, and i think covid sort of stripped away some of our pretenses about that it's like oh wow these people really weren't that into us anyway were they um <laughs> and and uh uh, and, and so I think we've got a lot to, to grapple with, but this is what's so powerful then as we imagine what a persuasive community might look like. I, I'm on the board of a university and I'm, I'm sort of a, a broken record when it comes to, you know, we should be the most persuasive community to these mostly Gen Zers who are on campus and who are, who are learning in our community because we actually believe that the Christian sexual ethic matters. We actually believe that the authority of scripture might matter to the way people live their lives. We actually think that suffering is part of the story that we're we're to be you know receive the comfort from god and and those who have been comforted by god are comfort to those who are going through um great loss that we believe that people aren't just little consumers of gospel content but they're participants in a mission of sharing jesus to the world and um and that's what my friend uh john dixon was really describing in this lecture was like that people couldn't actually be on mission with jesus in the way that the early church needed them to be without like, like the, 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 I don't know if I got this quite right, but like he said, there's like 144 hours of catechism before you could be baptized hmm. in the early church, um, in certain in certain parts of the early church, and that was a really inspiring idea because, um, you know, what would it look like for us to say, hey, we're not trying to make this, and he even made the he even made the comment that the early church would have been more often misunderstood as a kind of philosophical school than what we take it to be as a congregation today. And in, in other words, huh. there were these like, you know, you were in, you were kind of like enrolling in a way of, of thinking and being that was so countercultural at the time 
that you had to be immersed in the way of thinking about the Old Testament and the prophets and the, you know the life of Christ and these different components of what it meant to be reconciled to God in Christ. And um, and that was an every every person you know every man every woman kind of initiative. And so I think there's something really powerful about that. I mean, we should redesign. I believe our our children's and teen and young adult ministry, especially in youth ministry, around a much higher vision of what they're capable of learning. You know, they're learning calculus. They're they're learning a sociology of, you know, li- life and religion. They're they're they're, you know, my son's taking a class called the social construction of reality. He's an 18-year-old, you know, and it's like, you know, they're capable of way more than the way most of our our churches have organized the the catechism, the kind of things we expect you to learn and understand. And I think that's one place to start. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. You know, Easter is coming fast and we have put together a daily resource, 28 days to Easter, that you can easily get at reallifechurch.org. You can check that out there. Also at my website, pastorrustygeorge.com and on our Real Life Church app. We'd love to have you follow with us as we have a reading every single day, which gets us ready for Easter. All right, back to the show. Okay, so that's fascinating. It's interesting. I, a little bit of backstory here. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, and he was telling me that, hey, did you see so-and-so? They posted this thing, and it wasn't like a social media post. It was a, a higher education thing, but it was somebody coming after Brendan Manning uh, because he wasn't uh, he wasn't really into sanctification very much. He was more into disgrace. And I thought, boy, isn't that interesting? Because I remember when Brendan Manning started writing, we were all like, Oh my goodness, somebody's finally talking about grace, you know, and then Philip Yancey's book came out and on and on and on. And it seems like the pendulum just swings one way or the other, right? I mean, you and I are old enough now that we've seen it kind of go back and forth. And what what the mega church and what seeker driven ministry did for us in putting things on the bottom shelf, now based upon the persecution in which we're living in, we're gonna kind of have to step it up a little bit because I think the thing that COVID taught most of us pastors is a lot of our people were not near as mature as we thought they were. Right, right. I think that's right. And I think um, we would do well to think about the church in, I think, it's something of a biblical frame, which is a, the, the power of a remnant of a very small, committed, the, the, the word indoctrinated has uh, some negative connotations, but it truly just means like the doctrine is put inside you so that you can live it out. And I think that's part of what we're really missing. And I mean, we could make some really persuasive arguments about that. I and mean, we just interviewed 2000 Americans and we asked them, um, they're, they're so open to Jesus. They're so open to God. As I mentioned, um, you know, seven out of 10 Americans say, you know, they're, they're, um, open to God. almost seven out of 10. Oh, it was 54% say they've made a commitment to Jesus still important. Um, most believe that Jesus probably lived or are certain that he did. Um, there's so many openness, places of openness in the society. We sometimes as Christian leaders, I think, you know, beat ourselves uh, a sort of self-flagellation about how post-Christian or non-Christian our, our communities are, but but there's still a lot of muscle memory mm-hmm. around the Christian story in our communities. And yet um, there is, uh, it's like, and by the way, this is a, f- a super interesting data point. It's like half of Americans believe that Jesus is coming back. Um, and one in six believe he's coming back in their lifetime. Really? So, you know, like the, the, the shadow of Jesus' story looms large over the American society. And I think that's a great story because in most Western traditions, 
Um, it's actually still pretty looms pretty large in the UK and Australia and places that bemoan their post-Christian reality, even Canada. Um, you know, people say, oh, it's very post-Christian, but it's not really post-Christian. It's just there, there is an emerging post-Christian segment of the society, but still, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans and tens of millions of Canadians, for example, have this sort of muscle memory of Jesus. But what I think is happening is that there is this such a, a, a simplistic Jesus that has been embraced. So we asked another question, like, tell us any story. You have a favorite story about scripture. And it was about a third of all Americans who said they have a favorite story about Jesus' life, which is in stark contrast to the fact that the vast majority of Americans say they believe in him. And then, and then as we asked them an open-ended question, tell us and just list, you know, some of the things that you, that you remember. Um, and there just is, there's just not much beneath the surface. There's just not that much, you know, beneath the surface. There's, there's so so little um, real substance to uh, what people remember about about Jesus, and and that's on that's on us. I I you know I know people are distracted and there's a lot going on, but you know we would do well to sort of like how can we reorient our our churches and our our ministries to you know again preach Christ. He walks among us. He is uh, the incarnate Word, and He changes lives, and He does so every day uh, across this nation. Um, and in the ministries that you know that that are represented by churches and and the others that are listening to, to this podcast, but at the same time, like we have a a, a great responsibility, I think, to use some of Jesus' stories um, and, and and find ways of connecting that into people's you know hearts and minds, and, and even even more creative again, indoctrinating in the best sense of that word ways. Oh wow! Okay, so I could talk about this forever, but we're not going to for the sake of uh, your time and our listeners, but. I'm going to give you a few different um, trends right now, and based upon the data you're seeing, and just kind of uh, assuming the trend that you think it's going in, I want you to predict kind of what this will look like over the course of the next few years, okay? Okay. So the first one is multi-sites, okay? And now, I, here's a theory, and I think I'm wrong. My theory was that video-only multi-sites would fail post-COVID, because people are done watching screens. If they're going to show up, they want to see live everything. But I have other people tell me, no, no, no. Now they're conditioned to watch the screen and they don't find it to be a value loss when they show up in the room and they see a screen. What do you see and what do you expect? We don't have very good <clears throat> data on multi-site um, since covid we had done a, a, a study a few years ago called More Than Multisite, which looked a little bit at some of the phenomenon. Um, so I probably have to, uh, you know, a good disciplined researcher shouldn't sort of just guess uh, on, on, you know, what the actual trends will be with multi-site. Um, I, I think you should, what we can say is that there are these different discrete segments of our population. Um, and, and, and again, people's backstory, their set of expectations, their generation, their, their history, um, um, how warm they experience a community to be emotionally and relationally. Um, all those things will factor into it. So I think for some people who've got, you know, enough kind of history with larger churches and with kind of the, you know, A++ communicators league um, are going to be j just as good with, 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 you know, sort of multi-site screen uh, based preaching. You know, to, to your point, I think people are even more accustomed to that. 
than they would have been prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, But for others, that just isn't going to be their flavor. So it's just not going to be a strategy to reach your community. You're you're, you're kind of anybody that's doing multi-site or doing it as kind of their primary strategy is, I think, going to find that there are just certain segments of of churchgoers who just are not going to be as as, uh, 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 interested in that. It's just like theater going has taken a massive hit. Uh, People just, you know, like this huge shift to, towards like you see these films now being released it's like you know available in theaters and also like if you want to watch it on the streaming service we're happy to help you um so i just think there's different kind of segments now of people and, and when it comes into spiritually you know we're all very accustomed to content ingestion uh, but when it comes to church there's a real sense for people some people like uh, a more liturgical or more you know um high church experience or you know sort of a smaller church experience and i think i think some of those those perceptions are more being more deeply formed and one of the huge impacts of COVID is that a lot of boomers are just you know those that are born in 1948 to 1964 that was one of the surprises they're actually dropping out of church and they haven't really come back as much as as younger people have and younger people aren't coming back just to physical church so you've got this sort of double whammy where you've got an even less committed group of churchgoers or younger churchgoers because they're they're not as faithful givers, they're not as faithful comers, but they're but they're showing up. They have a lot of spiritual interest, and yet they're also going to be a little bit jaded around kind of the. Oh, we should just spend a minute talking about this idea of the deconstruction movement and like mm-hmm. getting the chord progression right. And we're hearing more and more people, especially young people, who said I was emotional emotionally manipulated to become a Christian because the church was so good at creating this environment. Uh, to make me think I really needed Jesus. And I'm not saying that's always right, because sometimes there are some things they just sort of really miss. But there's actually something very powerful, because people have been conditioned to understand the marketing moment, the kind of like enrollment thing that happens. And so to whatever extent, we as church leaders who've gotten really good at creating those kinds of, of moments in our services, or you know, we create this sort of experience set and we're some of the best in the world at that kind of live experience with people in a room towards leading them. The core progression goes to a certain thing. And, you know, like you, you come up and you speak with just a little bit different tone. And it's just like, you know, I grew up in a, my dad was a pastor of a large, large church. I, I saw there's there like a business of ministry and we all can kind of understand that. And so do most of the people in these, in these rooms. So boomers are, boomers are sort of like, Hey, we're just going to, wait till we you know move on to the sweet by and by and they're not coming back as as much as we might have expected and they're the more faithful giving units and then you've got younger people who are like hey we're going to come but we'll also like watch you know some proportion of the the sermons online and so it just it's a much more wild wild west experience now and so i think if video content is your jam and you've kind of made some pretty big investments in that I think that can still be redeemed and used, but like I just think it's got to be really contemplated and like, okay, how is this? How in two years, three years' time, do people who who come to Christ in these settings not look back and say, "What did I sign up for? Who was the the you know kind of the big face on the screen? And what the, what what happened there? Like, how can we really make sure? Again, I don't doubt that Holy Spirit works through any and all those tools, but just making sure we really kind of count the cost as to, you know, what will people remember about this experience in two or three years from now hmm. or 10 years from now? How can we make sure that there's a, a process where there's a relational, spiritual thing that we're we're as committed to them in all of life, that the conversion isn't just soul, but it's heart, mind, body, and strength? Um, 
you know, I think those are some, some things I, I feel like I get excited about this. I could probably just no. keep rambling on, but, um, it's great. It's great. It's a deep, it's a deeper answer, right. Than just like, do we, do we do the screens or not? And I know that was not quite the question, but there's all these dimensions that have to be factored into it. Uh, okay. Speaking of screens and you've alluded to this now a couple of times about the boomers. And I remember talking to friends at North point that saw this, where they would have, you know, once they started online, this is pre COVID they'd have people show up volunteer and then go home and watch church online because they want to deal with the crowds. It was just easier. They're home, they're having coffee, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier. So it seems like post-COVID, uh, you said it, and I didn't really put it together. Oh my goodness, you're exactly right. I have all these people that, that I have these deep relationships with, love the church, but I never see them on the weekend because they just watch at home on their own time. And yet the people that are, are the most consistent are our younger audience, but even then they're kind of hit and miss. So my question to get to my question is online. I mean, do we think that this is going to, I mean, obviously it's here to stay. We're not putting the genie back in the bottle and the people that want to shut their online service down to get people back in the room, I think they're going to have difficulty. Right. But where do you see this going? Do you see it being more of a hybrid approach? It is a wild west, but, but uh, make a prediction here and we'll, uh, we'll hold you to it. Um, well, I think the most innovative churches and I'm starting to hear others, uh, churches talk, talk about this, do this, that they see content and, and, and teaching and training, you know, they, they've, they're, they're kind of working in, in the consulting space. It's sort of, they, it's a, called a theory of change. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a way that we think about, um, content and training coming into impacting a person's life. And, um, and so I, th I think there's the, the, the best expression of what a church will do is when they've got a sort of a set um, curriculum, essentially, like, and just to put it in kind of a, a straightforward thing that would, would communicate here, it's like kind of like a, a 101, 201, 301, 401 kind of way of thinking. Like issues of human sexuality, for example, you simply cannot only preach about and expect people to get it because we are inundated in a world now, especially younger people, mm -hmm. um, in a world that just pummels you with the idea that you're on the wrong side of history if you have any kind of uh, Christian belief around, you know, sex being really for, you know, for man and woman in the context of marriage. Uh, and that's across a, a whole range of things. And, and like the idea of singleness, um, um, you know, the church does a terrible job, to be honest, at, at addressing um, unwanted singleness, celibacy, hmm. um, singles in the church. Uh, we are a very marriage-oriented culture, um, and I've ha I had to learn this sort of the hard way as a recent widower. Um, you know, it's like I'm like, oh wow, like all the boards I'm on, all the, the groups I'm in, they're all like a bunch of married people. And there's great reason, like nothing against the married people, but most of Christian ministry, especially with younger people now, is among among uh, unmarried people that have unwanted singleness or they've divorced or same-sex attraction people that decide to live in celibacy. So you can't teach your way through human sexuality from just like a sermon because like, first of all, I mean, let me just, no one would ever rise to this, the challenge of doing like an eight week series on human sexuality and survive it. Right. Um, <laughs> so you've got to have a, like a, a human sexuality, 101, 201, 301, 401, because that's really best done in the context of a, really more of a, a classroom. The, the rhetorical tools there have, um, you know, we need to learn from some of the best thinking in the world um, about that, and we can pipe that in through videos, and then we got to discuss it and workshop it and think about it together. 
um, this generation wants to make sure that this this human sexual ethic that we espouse as Christians can actually be livable for their friends. Like it has to, they, they have to at least understand why we hold these convictions. Um, so I think the best churches are going to have you know a really solid way of thinking about sermons and the tools of communicating in that way, um, and even like creating even maybe I don't have a quite the word for it, but like maybe even like a visual picture of like you, if you're going to do a six week sermon topic on. Uh, on or whatever number of weeks on a certain a certain um, issue or a certain book um, or or certain you know you're going to do a, a series on giving you're going to do a series on an Advent series and it's almost like is there almost like um uh like a sticker book and this is just again stick popping in my brain but it's like is there an infographic that you have to kind of like you know you have to listen to all these pieces so that p- people can see the picture you're trying to paint over the course of of you know of a, a multi-week series so we're, we're realistic that you're not going to probably hear all these but but we want you to kind of see the big picture and and here's the picture we're trying to, to show and if you're going to miss sermons three and four you can at least get a little piece of it by listening to this little three minute you know like when you watch a stream show it's like hey on the last episode here's where we left our characters because um you know most televisions like hey we're going to acknowledge that people might be catching up at different a different period so how can we make a kind of a, uh, uh, an episodic approach to our sermons so that people actually mm. like kind of want to go back and get some highlights? Um, and then on the, so there's like the, the whole theory of change that relates to sermons. And then there's a whole theory of theory of change that relates to how we educate people on the one one two one three one four one basis. We actually say, we have some things, you know, s- s- you know, sit back cause we got some things we want to, we want to show you, we want to teach you, we want to bring you along. And I think that, that notion that there's like kind of a a top layer of like the power of sermons and what it does in our lives and and then a, a power of like how we are educated for life in the world um i think that's going to be the kind of you know kind of one two punch that's going to be so necessary for a church to do its its discipling work um and that's going to be a mix of screens in person hmm. um kind of a me- mentoring a lot lots of different kinds of styles of learning but i think there's some really powerful ways that i think a church and we're some of the best in the world at doing this thinking about the persuasive spaces that we are we are inhabiting you know and i think um i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty bullish on the church coming out of covid being being very innovative around some of those those methods and models i think you're right I, I think our best days are ahead, and that's what I'm praying for. Amen to that. Uh, buddy, I do want to ask you uh, about uh, the passing of your wife. And I know it's been two and a half years now, um, a lot of grieving, a lot of processing for you and your kids. But I think it would be helpful for our listeners to know, for somebody who you know, has gone through the loss of a spouse and and she fought cancer for I think three years. Yeah. Um, it, it was obviously a very, very difficult thing to to watch and to be a part of and all that. Mm-hmm. For all of us who try to say the right thing in those moments, what are some of the things that you would you would educate us on? On hey, don't say this. Mm-hmm. Or I know you mean well, but this doesn't help. But this does. Uh, now we're getting really personal. It's not just data. This is your life. Yeah. So uh, help us out here, David. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, Jill uh, was an astounding human being, and uh, you know she is uh, deeply missed and long remembered. And you know, our lives will never be the same since her passing. And yet, God has been so close um, in in the midst of that. You know, the reality of Scripture has taken on 
such a deep meaning. And, you know, when you look in Second Corinthians 1, <clears throat> that, you know, out of the comfort we've received, we comfort others. The God of all comfort has comforted us. We, we despaired of life. We thought we might even die. Uh, but we stopped trusting ourselves and learned to trust God. So there's been some important things. And I think this idea of suffering is, uh, you know, we're often prepared to, for success, but we're not prepared for suffering. And I think the church, because, and this gets to some of the things we've been talking about, we went, the, the, the broader the audience, the bigger the room of people, sometimes the the more simplistic, you know, like we're all for leading simple, but we're not for leading simplistically. We're all for preaching the simple, powerful message of Christ's death, res, uh, death and resurrection, uh, but but not a simplistic uh, version of that. And so I think that this power of suffering, um, people are more aware of that, I think, now than, than ever. And I think hmm. as 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 true as it's not easy to preach that, there's a real human way to acknowledge that. So I would certainly talk to, to, to you know, listeners today to say, just be really present to uh, those in the room who are going through, you know, the worst that life has to throw you or, or who, who know like one degree, two degrees of separation uh, during, during uh, Jill's uh, illness. And then after her death, you know, my kids, as we've gone to churches, have been very aware of those times when it was happy clappy, you know, kind of like everything's going to be fine. And then they were very aware when people would say, Hey, you know, we can taste and see that the Lord is good. But for some of you, like, that's just not how you're experiencing God today because of what, you know, because of what you're going through. And so just being really, really aware, being emotionally sensitive to what people, and, and, and again, most church leaders are just so good at that, but just, every day asking the Lord just to humble us so that we can be prepared and as communicators and as pastors to, towards that reality because hmm. people suffer a lot. And when they suffer, you know, it, it can be horrific. And um, so that's one thing. And, and then on a, we were talking before we went on the air, just like, you know, I had to decide early on that I was going to start a, a website, prayforjill.com. And um, in the meantime, I've, after she, her passing about a year ago, I took, I took it down just cause it was like, it was my story. It was our family story. And it wasn't, you know, we, we felt like we needed to communicate to broad audience as she was going through the steps of, you know, her, her life and her, her cancer and, and all that. But, um, you know, since then it's sort of like, you know, I've, I've decided I'd really like being private about some of that. Um, we talked beforehand, you asked if you could, you know, chat with me. So I'm happy to, to talk about this as a, a a means of talking about some of these larger ideas. People have suffered a lot through COVID, the loss of people to COVID, the loss of uh, a sense of the world being a simple, peaceful place. Um, you know, you, you, it's, it is as simple as hand sanitizers all over the, over the place or just certain practices that just don't seem like the same. Um, and so, you know, uh, Rick Warren uh, has this great input is like, you know, the level of, of suffering or, or grief or um, loss should equal the amount of, it's an inverse relationship to the number of words we should use. So, you know, so, someone gets in a car wreck, you know, you can say more than if someone loses a wife to cancer. And hmm. um, so sometimes you just, we, he just says, you, go, you show up and you shut up, <laughs> you know, and you, you let the person lead, lead you, you through those things. And um yeah, so I think I think that's been the most helpful advice that I've gotten, and and you know when I now encounter people that have gone through great loss, I just like I'm just so sorry for your loss, and yeah, I don't even say like if you want to talk about it, I'm here for because they they know that people who go through grief like they 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 figure that out that you know so it's just how can you show up in 
in tangible ways. Um, and again, people really mean well, uh, but they often don't quite know what, the, and, and I always take the people's intent when they say, Hey, how are you? How are the kids? What's going on? Like, you know, it, it all, it always comes from a good place, but it's always like, you know, it's been a couple of years. Like I'm not thinking about that the minute I walk up to see you, but you see, you see my face, you think about the, the grief story that you encountered as, as you, you know, heard my name. And so now I'm like, I'm like kind of the poster boy for people's, um, you know, like, gosh, how are you? Mm-hmm. And so there's this, there's actually this really funny show called the unicorn about a guy who loses his wife. He's got two kids. It's a, just a sitcom. That's called the unicorn about a guy who lost his wife to cancer of all things. Her name is Jill in this sitcom. And that's my wife's late wife's name. And, um, it's about one year in and we pick up the story of this family and they get into the very bottom of the freezer with all the, uh, the frozen meals that people have prepared for them. And so they're having to learn how to like cook for themselves. They're having to learn, uh, the, really the, the, the central, uh, theme of the show is about him getting back into the dating world, which I have done in the last, in the last year, which has been a lot of fun. Um, and, and, you know, complicated and, and, you know, learning from my kids about dating, it's kind of crazy. Um, and, um, that's not a place I thought I would be, but it's funny because people come up to me and they're like, Oh, Hey Dave, you know, I kind of went from like, Hey Dave, how's it going? What's going on? You know, what's the, what's, what's the latest, you know, with you or tell me about your research to like, Hey Dave, you know, the head, the head cocks, the eyes get squinty, you know, their voice gets quiet. It's almost like we're in the hospital waiting room. Hey Dave, how's it, how's it going? How are your kids? what how's your heart like i barely even know you man (laughs) it's all right i mean i know you're coming from a good place but it's like it's okay so um you know it's just like uh recognizing that that um you know and we have to laugh about uh these things um because you know what else what else can we do that but to Mm -hmm. acknowledge the brevity of all of our lives and jill's given me and uh and those who were closest to her you know a gift she was very courageous in in life and cancer uh, and, and then in her death, um, you know, she, she loved Jesus so much. And, you know, I asked her towards the end of her life, <clears throat> you know, how she was feeling about a lot of it and brain cancer sucks because you you lose a person all, all, all dying sucks, but brain cancer is particularly rough because you lose someone's ability to communicate their, their essence is there, but there's just like, there's just like, you know, almost like, um, yeah, these, these cl- clouds that that start to obscure you know conversation and con- connection but um mm. she said she wasn't mad at god she just wished she would she would love to know you know why she got this dealt this particular hand in life mm. and um so she said you know she'll have some questions for the lord about that but she was um so sweet uh and so courageous and um yeah it's it is not a story that you want to go through but you know it also it's given me even to something we talked about earlier, you know, it's like, it's given me great compassion for those with unwanted singleness and those who've gone through great loss. And, um, you know, we, this fellowship of the suffering and, you know, it's like, I think, I think we as pastors, especially, you know, kind of pastors of larger churches, it's like, we always want to kind of compel people towards this like story of, you know, kind of, uh, self-evident success like you know it's going to work out it's going to like here we go like it's, it's going to all grow and up to the right but i actually think that the story of of, of our um of our witness today has got to be about faithfulness and suffering that's that's mm. a, a critical part of the, the gospel narrative uh of what of what the early church was able to testify uh to and that 
that that is the real essence of what a generation is looking for today is is not just faithfulness and success but faithfulness and suffering mm. and so um i think we have a lot of lessons to learn from those who've suffered greatly mm. and they should be given you know like we can't just can't be a melodramatic tour you know, the parade of horribles but we can we can give some we can give some time to hearing from people who've been through the worst of what life life has to offer and where they find their hope and what greater testimony could that be and whether that's on a screen or in person big church or small whether the chord progression and the lights were turned up just the right like that that those kinds of stories are going to last and i think we have a great opportunity to lean into other stories in our churches of, of what god's been up to and uh, not just sort of focus on the success stories but but the faithful and suffering stories and that i think is going to go a long way towards uh, uh, reestablishing the credibility of this uh, story uh, with people that are that are you know, they're so skeptical of being marketed to. Mm-hmm. Well, I really, really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you for that. When we play this back, we'll have the E minor chord progression underneath it. <laughs> Along with the drum roll. <laughs> That's right. The drum roll will be added as well. Well, bud, this has been so, so good. To quote our good friend, Carrie Newhoff, so rich. Uh, I'm just uh, really, really thankful for your time and uh, for your transparency too. Not just the data, but uh, just a little insight into your life as well. That will help a lot of us out. Okay. So where can people find you? I know physically you've you've moved away from us out here in California. So uh, you, like the rest of our state, moved to Texas. So yeah. uh, where can they find you online? Uh, well, Barna.com is, you know, the place to go and we've got uh, some great tools there, lots of free stuff. And, uh, if you're interested in subscribing to our, uh, tool for church leaders called Barna Access, we would love to have you be part of that community. We have almost 8,000 churches, uh, 8,000 people subscribing now. So we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of people being equipped with access to the data, right, right. As we PowerPoint slides and sort of facts for sermons and just trying to equip you as leaders to understand the culture and how to administer effectively. So that's Barna Access. And um, uh, I'm most often on Twitter, although in 2023, my intent is to do some more stuff on Instagram. Uh, so um, I've got some some fun things ahead, um, some projects that I'm really excited about getting back into into writing mode. And, hmm. you know, we, we actually have some intent to launch a new a new effort alongside Barna about this sort of new new catechism for a new time. So, but that's that's a, a little bit down the road. But we're we're just so honored. First of all, just great to to spend a little time with you and your listeners today, and so honored to serve churches and you know in the midst of a lot of pretty challenging times. And we've all lost something in these last couple of years. Uh, some of us more than others, but but all loss is is uh, kind of kind of deep thing that has to take us to the bedrock of our faith. And uh, out of that comfort we hopefully receive from the Lord, we can comfort others. And it's been a great pleasure to um, try to find ways of serving church, today's church leaders you know, to help you be more effective. There's there's so much good work to be done. Mm. And as you said, like the, the church's best days are ahead of it. Amen. Well, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Of course. Well, that was so fascinating. I just love David and uh, the stuff that he does for the church and just his uh, good-natured sense of humor and the fun that we had on this conversation. He's written some great books that are out there. He's got great research out there as well, so make sure that you check that out. Okay, friends, next week we get to have a conversation over a very controversial subject. And it, there's going to be this uh, interview that we get to do with a guy by the name of Sam Alberry. Sam is an individual who is same-sex attracted and years ago wrote a book entitled why does god care who we sleep with and he gets to 
uh, this question in a very intriguing way. I think you're really going to be fascinated by what it is he has to say. So you're going to want to be back next week for our controversial, exciting, interesting conversation with Sam Alberry. Thank you so much for being with us today on the show. Thank you to Belay Solutions for supporting it. And we will see you next week. As always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple. As we mentioned at the top of the podcast, our partner Belay is offering their leadership toolkit free to listeners. In it, you can learn the steps to take as a leader to accomplish more and juggle less. Belay's modern church staffing solutions have been helping busy church leaders delegate important financial details for over a decade. Their fractional U.S.-based contractors provide accounting and virtual assistant services to level up your church through the power of delegation. Just text Rusty, that's R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123 to claim this exclusive offer and get back to leading your church well with Belay.